Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Sean Walker of Simple Cove, and I'm joined today by Hui Huen, the Alabama woodworker. The Alabama woodworker. Somebody told me I need to go by the Alabama woodworker and not yeah, of the Alabama. Keeping you on your Yeah, because I've said that a bunch of times. You never listen to me. Uh, well, you know, it's one of our listeners said that, so I'm going to listen to them. Uh, yeah, okay? of course. Yeah. Hey, hey how, yeah. how's everybody doing? <laughs> Good. Doing great. And the Guy Dunlap of Guy's Woodshop. Hello. Hello. This podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and to give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops, right or wrong. We also have a Patreon campaign, and we'd like to thank our newest patrons, David Morton, Tom Henderson, and Adrian Abshire. If you'd like to support the show, we're simply asking for a small donation to cover the costs of bringing you this amazing podcast. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash woodshoplife if you would like to show your support. But with that, let's get right into it. Hui, what's your first question? All right. So this is from Tom, and he says, Hi, my name is Tom, but my friends call me Captain Awesome. He's ooh, Captain he's Awesome. That's, that's, Captain, that's, he, that's awesome. Yeah, this guy's got a little bit of sense of humor. He he actually addressed each of us uh, with some uh, comments. They're all kind of funny, so I'll let you guys read that on your own. But after 80-some-odd episodes, I feel like you are all my friends, so feel free to do the same. Aww. My woodworking question. My current project required extensive use of a tongue and groove bit set, specifically the Freud adjustable kit to make siding and flooring. My next project is a set of cabinets for my laundry room, lowers, uppers, and a full height pantry. Shaker style, no profiles on the cove, uh, cope and stick frames. Is there any reason I shouldn't, can't use a tongue and groove set to route the rails and styles for the cabinet doors and frames and should purchase a set for, with a more refined profile. He puts that in quotes there. I like the Freud kit. You can really dial in the fit, especially for veneering center panels, but all the cool kids on the interweb seem to use specific profile bits. I should mention, I saw a guy did a video with an adjustable set, but you know what they say. Don't trust anyone over 40. I'm 44. Oh. <laughs> regardless, there are three. Uh, regardless, there are three. So deathmatch over it or something. The cabinets will be made of hard maple, which I'm sorry about my dogs, which I know is a pain in the butt uh, to work with and route cleanly. But I got a tree in the I got a tree in the kiln and the tongue and groove I just finished was over a thousand linear feet. Thanks for the advice. I'm starting to I'm starting on these in early December, so I'll probably use whatever answer you provide in early January. All right, so the I'm sorry about my dogs, and there's no way for me to uh, mute that out because I'm talking at the same time. So sorry about that. So he's talking specifically about this adjustable kit, and I looked it up, and it's actually pretty neat. And, and mm -hmm. everything I've ever used has been a match set. And you sort of have to buy the match set specific to the groove or tongue uh, width that you're uh, looking for. In this case, you can adjust the tongue and groove. And it, uh, the Freud set, you can adjust the tongue and groove anywhere from 7 seconds to 3 eighths of an inch. I see no problem using that for your uh, rails and styles for your cabinets. In fact, actually, I would probably... Uh, get something like that because it's going to give you uh, more, you know, options with regards to uh, the different things that you're doing. And in this case, it's the siding, the flooring and the rails and the styles. So I see no problem with that. Are, are there any benefits to getting 
specifically a match set over something like this. My guess is that it takes a little bit longer to set this up. Maybe. Am I right about that? No. <laughs> Versus- I, I, I don't know if it takes longer to set up. You know, there's setup involved. And, and anytime you're dealing with, you know, mortise and tenon, which basically that is, it's a stub tenon um, fitting right. into the groove on the, on the, on the style. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's setup no matter what. There's a certain amount of dialing in involved in it. You'll set the height of the bit on the on a traditional tongue and groove set, whereas you may have a little bit more on the Freud kit if you can adjust it more than just the height. Is it adjustable like you can adjust the the tongue bit? Yeah, yeah. You can adjust the width of the tongue and essentially the width of the groove. I like that because I'll be honest with you. Some of the I've bought I've purchased tongue and groove kit bits mm-hmm. and and it's a, the the ones that I've tried. Well, not all of them. One of them that I've tried, it was a looser fit than I would like for mm-hmm. a door or a frame rather uh, for a door. Now, if I'm doing some flooring, it you know it's not that big of a deal, right? But for the door, I, it, I did have a tongue groove set that I was not a fan of. It was just too loose, and even with glue, it's going to swell a little bit. I mean, it was. But after it swells, it's going to contract. contract. That's going to be my very next. Yeah, it, exactly. <laughs> But it, it, uh, it yeah, the, t- I would rather have spend the money to get the Freud kit being able to adjust that so you can get a snug fit versus yeah, there, there's really two ways to do that. One is what, what, what he's referring to with the, uh, the adjustable router bit or just regular router bits, or you can even use a dado stack in yes. your, in your table saw as another way to do it. Mm-hmm. One thing I have found. In all my years of experience, is that the router table I have much more consistent results with. Yes, I, yeah. than I would a dado stack, um, especially when you start getting into the the, the router table and you start using something like a, a, a the coping sleds. Coping sled, yeah. yeah, yeah, and you can get very very consistent with it while a dado stack on a table saw you can be very consistent but i i just think it's not as consistent as the router table the router table may take a little bit more work to set up it may not cut as quick or as easy but like i said if you're doing a bunch of uh, doors it's going to be more consistent yeah 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 Use uh use your hold downs all that stuff uh, help with and you got a consistent thickness on the carbide on the on the router bits versus putting a dado stack in you know I have had issues with the dados not issues just consistency issues of you know tightening it too tight made it a touch a touch smaller putting a shim in there um you know it, yeah whereas when you're using the tongue or groove bits on the on the router table you're just adjusting the height. Unless yeah. you get the Freud kit, and you probably adjust more than that. But yeah, you get more consistency. So yeah. with regards to pricing, I mean, I was looking at here the white side shaker straight style and rail set for a plywood panel or MDF panel. And that's $105 for that match set. Uh-huh. And then the Freud one and three quarter inch diameter adjustable tongue and groove is $80. So it's actually really not badly priced it's yeah pretty i, I actually bought a set of bit i made a uh, set of pantry doors for my kitchen and they're they're two 
uh, four panel or six panel doors. Mm-hmm. And I bought a, a, a Freud set of bits for it that were, you know, it was like $300 or something like that. But oh, I wow. used them and then I sold them on eBay for like 280 bucks. Really? That's yeah. Smart. Yeah. I turned right around and sold them. Yeah. So you got what you needed out of them. Yeah. 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 I'll never, I'll never make those doors like that again. I don't think. And if I do, I'll do the same thing again. So it was kind of like run a router, but yeah. Yeah. For, for sure. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, Tom, I hope that helps you. I, I would go for it. I don't, I don't see, and I think all of us are in agreement. There's really no problem to doing it that way. But if you wanted to do it on a table saw as well, that's perfectly fine. So, all right. And so now thank you, Tom. Next question goes to Guy. Well, this question comes from Jeremy and it says, I, or he asks, I have a question about cleaning my three horsepower dust collector with dual canisters. I have the Grizz G0562, but I assume that the Jet, Powermatic, and other brands, similar models are maintained the same. How often, if ever, should I clean the canisters and how best to do that? I recently gave my shop the semi-annual leaf blower clean, and when I passed the blower in front of the canisters, I saw a huge amount of fine dust drop down into the bag. I somewhat often spin the handle on top of the canister, but that doesn't seem to release anything noticeable. Thanks, fellas. Keep up the great work, Jeremy. So let's talk about this because I don't think we've ever really discussed something Cleaning like can- this with the with the canisters. Yeah. So um, here's my take on it. I've had canister HEPA canisters on my filter for. I want to say probably seven or eight years now. Mm-hmm. And I go back to, not a lot of people know this about me, but I worked in the swimming pool and spa industry for a number of years. I think about 17 years. And there's a old saying in the swimming pool industry that the dirtier a filter gets, the better it cleans. That really applies also to dust collectors. The only problem with that is that yes, as it gets dirtier, it cleans better, but it also adds back pressure. So you get flow problems. So it may be cleaning better and cleaning down to a smaller particle. However, it's not letting enough, it's not giving enough throughput to get the turnover that you need or the CFM in this case that you would need on a dust collector. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay. I'm glad it makes sense to somebody. (laughs) Hui, <laughs> you're an engineer, so of course it makes sense to you. The way I clean mine right now is I just bang my hands. I don't have a uh, one of those things that's got like the flappers that, you know, like cleans yeah. the, yep. flips around and, and cleans that stuff off. I just take my hands and I bang it on the outside to get rid of the large caked on stuff. So I do that. And that falls down into the, the, the catch basin underneath. But I don't blow it out with like a, you know, a, a couple times I have done that where I've taken it out in the lawn and I've gotten an air hose and I've, you know, sprayed the thing out going from the outside in. Yeah. yeah. To get rid of every bit of dust that I could inside the canister. Mm-hmm. And none of that really mattered. 
A, it's a HEPA filter. It, it cleans down to like, you know, something ridiculous micron-wise. You know, it's like 0.97 of anything, everything under 10 microns or some crap like that, or two microns. Right. So it's already going to clean really well. I'm all for saving myself the grief of doing that because it's a very messy process. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to do it unless I absolutely feel it's necessary. I don't feel it's necessary. I, I clean the, 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 the big chunks off just by mm-hmm. banging the outside, mm-hmm. which is kind of like what those flappers do. You know, the things with the, you know, the handle on top that hits the, the, the pleats. Mm-hmm. Right. If, if you got, if people listening don't know what I'm talking about, you know, you've got a canister and there's a bar that goes down. There's these flappers that hit the fingers on them and you, you spin the top of it and it hits it. Some have little motors and everything on it. It can be pretty fancy. Yep. And that knocks the big nasty bits down into a collection bin underneath. Mm-hmm. I think that's fine. I do not, I have not taken my canister off my dust collector in probably four or five years now. It's yeah. just not necessary. Yeah. I don't think it is. Yeah. How do you guys feel about that? I have the single canister version of what he's asked or what he's, what he has. Um, and it has the flaps. So when I, when I, rem, um, since I rarely empty a bag nowadays, since I'm hardly out in the shop, I will take the, the little flapper and, you know, run it around a couple dozen times and then smack on the sides a little bit. And, uh, and it, and it, until it stops dropping noticeably. And then I will replace the bag or empty the bag and put the bag back on. But, I do once a year take it off, flip it upside down after doing the flapping and all that stuff. Take it off, flip it upside down, and then just take an old shop vac that I have and 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 suck it out uh, in between the the whatever you want to call it on the pleats. inside pleats. Yeah, yeah, the pleats. Mm-hmm. I will do that with the shop vac. Um, again, you're not going to get that completely clean, but as long as it's not packed in between the pleats mm-hmm. is my goal. And then I stick it back on, um, put everything back together, turn it on, make sure there's no leaks. And then, and then I'm, you know, I pick it back up and keep rolling with the project that I'm working on. Yeah. So I had one of those, uh, I used to have a dust collector for about four or five years that had the motor with the flapper thing in it. That was a uh, JDS. It was a JDS. Yeah. Yeah. Can I tell you that thing was annoying? Cause it, it, it turned on every single time. And I actually, I, I never got around to ever like dismantling it because it was just excessive in my opinion. You had a motor you... with it on there? Like a motor yeah. to turn it? Yeah. Yeah, every time I turn it off, it like spins for 30 seconds. Uh, it's just cool. like, ugh, it just drove me nuts. I don't know why, but it did. Um, it, it's just not necessary like every single time you turn it yeah. off. But I had one of those, and I think there was one time that I disconnected it and put it in a bag and then took my uh, leaf blower and went to town at it and whatnot. And I thought it was more trouble than it was worth. Oh, it's so messy. Big <laughs> yeah. clouds of dust and ugh. Yeah, so, so I did it one time, and I was like, yeah, I'm not doing that again. So, you know, because it's the flapper's already... Um, flapping or knocking all the heavy dust off of it and whatnot. Now I, I have a clear view now and I don't have a flapper motor in it. So, um, 
and I've only had it for, I don't know, about four months in the shop. So really, I don't think it's accumulated any really significant amount of dust in there. But uh, yeah, I guess I'm just going to knock it with my hand like you do, guy, and, and just call it good from there because, man, that's a pain in the butt to take that thing off and, and yeah, blow it out it down and do so, all that crap. There's yeah, a clean out box on the bottom. So maybe I could use like a, just a leaf blower on it and just go from the outside. I don't know, but yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't see the need to do any of that stuff. I, I just bang on it a couple times from the outside and I got the clean out bin from underneath. Mm-hmm. I emptied out. And I'm just buy you a new canister every time you replace your bag. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> But so, no, I I stopped any doing any sort of deep cleaning of it. It just seemed more trouble than it was worth. I, I hope that answers your question, Jeremy. You know, I I said I don't, there's really not that much more to say. Um, but taking it off and going through a big cleaning process, all three of us are in the agreement that it's it's really not necessary. I do it once a year, but okay. I flip it over and you hit it with a shop vac. I don't blow it out. That would be a mess. Yeah, it is yeah, a mess. yeah, yeah. It is a mess. I go from one filter to another. <laughs> <laughs> All, All right. right. So, me, Sean. Sean. That's right. This is from Damon. Hey, guys, I have a question about chasing the burr when sharpening plane irons. I use a Veritas. I use a Veritas Mark II guide and get a great polish on my PMV11 plane irons with a 12,000 grit shaft in stone. After the micro bevel has a consistent sheen all the way across, I take the iron out of the guide and use the ruler trick to remove the burr. I tried swapping back and forth just once all the way up to seven or eight times. Sometimes I can shave my forearm hairs at that point, but often have to go to the strop for a few passes before doing the ruler trick again on the 12,000 grit stone. Since I primarily use bevel up planes with different blade angles, I prefer... I'd really prefer to not have to use the strop because it's hard for me to tell what angle I'm at when stropping freehand. Do you guys have any advice that can help me remove the burr without having to chase it? Well, a couple things came to mind. Um, Obviously, just because you have a a great polish doesn't mean that you're sharp. Um, That's one thing that I I learned while sharpening my, uh, my plane irons and chisels and whatnot. But a couple things came to mind, um, in particular with the PMV 11, I don't have any experience with that, but obviously the harder the metal is, the harder, the longer it's going to take for you to sharpen it. So one thing that came to mind is that you could potentially not realize how dull the plain iron is when you're sharpening it. So sometimes it's a touch up and sometimes it's going to take a little bit longer because it's hard to gauge how, how dull the plain iron is. So maybe the times that you're having the issues, it's just you know, you need to sharpen longer, maybe step down a grid. I don't know what your, what you, your, your progress, uh, if you go from 4,000, 8,000, 12,000, I don't know, uh, what your Shapton stones, uh, are other than the 12,000 that you mentioned here. Um, but it just could be that it's duller than you think. And you may have to step back a grit before going back to the 12,000 or just spend longer on the 12,000. Um, but that, that was one thing that came to mind. The second thing is I have had, I had the Mark II guide and I, I got rid of it because I had issues of, of sharpening at the same consistent angle each time. Um, and I also had the issues with the, uh, the blade not being or being in there skewed and not getting a, a clean bevel all the way across. I'm not saying that's your issue, but that's just something that it could also contribute to this is that you're not getting, the, the blade at a consistent angle every time that you sharpen. 
And, um, you know, going to the strop, it's such a fine grit that yeah. I would not worry about it changing the, the angle of your, of your blade, of your, um, your honed angle or whatever. I wouldn't worry about that. It's such a high, a high grit that that's, that would not be a concern of mine, but it, you know, it sounds like to me that, and again, I don't have any experience with PM V11 stuff, but it may just be a case where sometimes it's, all you need is a light touch up, but sometimes you need to step back a grit and then go back to the 12,000 um, and, and then, and then see where you are. Now I don't quite understand. Do you have advice that can help me remove the burr without having to chase it? So does that, and guy and we, does that in your mind mean that Damon's not getting a burr off of the 12,000, meaning it's not pushing it over the edge? Um, or do you think that that means that swiping it on the back with a ruler trick is not removing it? Maybe not removing it. I mean, it also kind of sounds like maybe he's not like it's creating the burr and then it goes to the other side of the blade and then it goes to the other side of the bevel and the other side of the blade. And like, he's trying to just, I don't know. I mean, I've not ha ever had an issue removing the burr after I've sharpened. That's kind yeah. of like, I'm like thinking to myself, it's like, what? I'm not exactly sure what his problem is. Yeah. And I know the ruler trick, at least for me, uh, I, I kind of see the strop as like just like a quick maintenance kind of thing, you know, in between uh, in, in between sharpenings. Um, I, I really I mean, I'll ask you, Sean, do you do you use the strop after you hone the blade? Like after you've, you know, basically removed the bevel, do you strop? I, I don't. Well, I. I originally stropped, but now I have one of those, uh, a block of MDF and those, uh, those diamond paste, a really, really fine mm -hmm. diamond paste that I put, mm -hmm. that I use. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, the only reason why I'm using that instead of a strop is because I purchased a tube on eBay like a hundred years ago and, and that stuff is <laughs> last forever. Uh, but yes, I do hit some sort of either the strop or that stuff it. after, especially if I'm chiseling like dovetails or something, I'll, yeah. I'll, you know, I'll touch it up every now and then. And instead of going back to the stones. Yeah. But, you know, it kind of sounds like to me, it, I ran into issues using that Veritas um, honing guide. There is a, a great article on my site that uh, a guy named Tim posted on how to how to adjust that guide and make it a, a, a better guide. But it could be also that, again, you're not getting consistent angles using that guide and, you know, you're having to put more of a back bevel on it with that ruler trick than you're really wanting to to chase that down. If the issue is you're not able to remove the burr using the, uh, the ruler trick. So you may want to check the angle of it, of your, uh, of your iron and see if, if that's the issue, you could be putting a, a micro bevel on the front at a different mm -hmm. angle. Every time you stick it in the guide. Yeah. Yeah. I've gone back and forth about using the ruler trick. I think as of late, I stopped using it just because I forgot to put the stinking ruler on there, but I, I I've sort of gone back and forth and I really can't tell that much of a difference in terms of how, sharp or how fast I'm able to, you know, hone my blades. Uh, I try not to put too much time into it and um, put more time into, I don't know. That's, uh, that's just me. I but, think it depends uh, on how much you've used the ruler trick to get, you know, how many times you've used the ruler trick on your plain iron. You know, if you've used it a lot, obviously you've got a very tiny uh, back bevel on there. So going flat yeah. on the stone may take you longer because you've got that, you're not touching the very edge. But right, if you've not done right. it a whole lot, it shouldn't be that bad to just go straight to the stone. I guess we could should also mention what the ruler trick is right quick. Yeah. 
Uh, sure. So the ruler trick is, it's like, so you've got a sharpening stone, in his case, it's sharpened stone. And rather than flattening the entire, not the entire back, but uh, uh, putting the entire back of the flat of the back of the blade, uh, whether it be a chisel or a plain iron, on the uh, shapton stone, um, you're just raising up ever so slightly the thickness of a ruler in this case, uh, so that's angled. And so then you're just removing or, or polishing just the very, very fine edge on the back of the blade. And that's going to only be a plain iron. You wouldn't want to do that on a chisel. Right, no. right. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. You don't do it on chisels. Guy, do you do you use a strop? I, I do use a strop. Mm-hmm. Um, I really want to try to answer Damon's question and not give my, <laughs> that sounds strange for me, and not give my personal opinion about this. Yeah. The only thing I can say is I'm not shaving forearm hairs. I'm trying to shave wood. Mm-hmm. That's what you should worry about. Mm-hmm. If you put it in the plane and it gives you shavings off the wood, you're ready to yeah. rock and roll. Yeah, man. Don't care about shaving your forearm hairs. We're about shaving wood. That's the best advice I can give you. Um, what Sean is saying before about, you know, maybe you've done the ruler trick a few too many times and you've created too large of a back bevel to where mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you're going to have to put two rulers underneath there. Yeah. To get your 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 back bevel up high enough to where you're taking that that burr off. Um my recommendation would be to be flat in the back of it. Mm-hmm. Get stop doing the ruler trick. It's unnecessary. I depending on the quality of the plane iron. He's got PMV eleven. Those suckers are flat, man. Those yeah. are nice. Those are well nice. in his case it's unnecessary, yeah, but not yeah. in some cases. I've seen some rough plane irons. Yeah. I'm not gonna name any names. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could. But I, I mean, if 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 you flatten it correctly, anyways. So, Damon, I, I guess what I'm saying is, you know, flatten the back of it, get rid of any back bevel that there might be from the previous times that you've done the ruler trick with. Sharpen the blade. Don't do the ruler trick, and just the way I always did it was, I'm taking the plain blade, I'm putting the the, the bevel on it. Mm-hmm. And after that's done, I'm putting it flat on the stone. I'm giving it like one or two passes and I'm removing that burr, that wire, that wire burr off yeah. the front of it. That's all it takes. And then I'm done. Mm-hmm. So I've never done the, the ruler trick. So I never how, saw the need to. Do you use the strop for maintenance or do you use I use the strop for maintenance. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, somebody, you know, the people have stopped me before and said, hey, don't do that because you might round over the edge. I'm, yeah, I'm not gonna. Are you really? If if I, you know, whatever the the, the grit of that paste is, you know, <laughs> eighty thousand grit on so a piece fine. of leather, I've, yeah. I've, I'll have to stand there for two or three years at a really bad angle just to mm-hmm. to ruin that that yeah. blade. I think, anyways, I agree with I, you. I think people get really too wrapped around the axle mm-hmm. about a lot of this stuff, and I've said that before. Yeah. yeah. So Damon, does it? Sharpen it, flatten the back, put a put a put an angle on it, put it back in your plane, and see if it shaves wood the way you need it to. That's all you need to do. Yep. You don't need to do scary sharp. You don't need to do this. You don't need to do that. Put it in your plane and see if it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm not shaving with it. I'm not sure what he means by remove the burr without having to chase it, unless he's 
unless the I I think it sounds like a, he's got an issue trying to remove the burr. Yeah, that's what I would think. But yeah, I, I've never it. had an issue removing the burr. I mean, the burr comes off like really fast. Yeah, a couple of swipes. Yeah, well, hopefully that helps Damon. You know, PMV eleven is I've never used it, but I I've heard great things about it. That's wonderful. I hear it's a little bit. Maybe I'm wrong, but a little bit tougher to to sharpen. Actually, but, it's very easy to sharpen. Yeah. It, it, it's kind of best of the both worlds between yeah. A2 and O1. Um, A2 being the harder, it maintains the edge for a little bit longer. O1's a little softer. It's easier to get an edge with it, but hmm. um, is softer, so uh, the edge doesn't stay as sharp for as long. Okay. Well, that's that's my understanding between A2 and O1. When I Whereas purchased PMB my... PMB 11 is kind of like that perfect balance between the two. When I purchased my... Lee Valley PMV 11 was sold out, so I didn't get the opportunity to test it. So mm. there you go. Hopefully that helps. Um, let us know if uh, if we were in, went in the wrong direction with the answer, Damon. But with <laughs> that, I'm pass off to Hui for your second question. All right. So this question is from Chris Huff, and he actually sent the question directly to me, but I went ahead and added it to our list of questions here because I thought it was pretty interesting. Uh, I'm moving to a new basement shop with no windows. My concern is about overhead lighting. Did you My use... My concern would be working down there after having chili for dinner. <laughs> Did you use a program to help... Gosh, that's hilarious. Sorry. You got my Bad mind joke. Up. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Did you use a program to help lay out the design? I'm working on tool and dust collection right now. Also, I'm leaning on four-foot LEDs at 5K color. Any suggestions? Yes, uh, I did not use a specific, I did not use a program myself. I actually contacted this company called 1000bulbs.com. And funny enough, I did not actually buy my LEDs from them. I just contacted them because, well, I needed help designing or figuring out how many lights and how many foot candles uh, that I was looking for. That's the illuminance measurement and, um, and how many lumens I needed and all that stuff to it, but when I was moving into my new shop. So I actually contacted them. I wrote them an email and they actually wrote back to me and they asked me all the questions like how tall my ceilings and, and how, uh, how big is my shop? And they, uh, they used a program, one that they do not offer to consumers, but they used a program and then drafted me a copy of page printout essentially of what I would need, how many lights, where they should be laid out, how far apart and uh, how many lumens I would need. Now I believe another company that does consultations. Wait, wait you, <laughs> you had them do all this for you. You didn't even buy your lights from them. They offered it for free. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a free, it's a free service that they offer. And uh, I believe American green lights does the same, but I've not used them. I believe guy you've used American green lights. Did they do something like that for you? Yes. Any lighting company that was lighting design, mm -hmm. that's a standard thing, standard thing across all industries. Okay. This is nothing special. Mm -hmm. Any company that makes lights should do this for you. Okay. But yeah. I'd recommend if you have them go through the machinations of actually doing that for you, you should probably buy the lights from them. I didn't buy the lights from them. Because <laughs> that's, just, that's just good form. Well. Figure I'm, out what kind of lights you want, then have that company go through 
and do the the calculations for you because they have to pay somebody to sit there and do that. I will Unless bet you their lights are crap. Now, now you're making me feel bad. No one feel bad. Shame no one. We. I guarantee you, you had at least seven or eight exchanges with them. Uh, two or three actually. Oh. It was pretty quick. No, seriously, I, I have the emails. <laughs> There's about two or three correspondences. Go ahead and give them a yeah. shout out again, just at least to help them a little bit. <laughs> it was a thousandbulbs.com. There you go. And they yeah. and they're pretty. They have pretty economical uh, LEDs, but they did but not. not. <laughs> and the reason why I did not buy from them is they did not have what I needed in stock at the time. Mm. So that's fair enough. Um, any other, so I, I mean, I guess that answers the question in most terms. Uh, how about you guy, uh, Sean, what lights did you get and what lights do you have? And did you go through any sort of company to sort of calculate what you needed? Nope. I purchased four foot, um, fixtures with four bulbs and I have to change my bulbs. I am way too, um, what is it? The lower is warmer. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm way too warm. I'm at 46 or 4,200, 46. Um, but no, I just, I purchased uh, three, five, four foot banks and then just um, had a buddy install them, space yeah. them out evenly using conduit on the, on the surface. Metal conduit looks really good. I mean, my shop is well lit. Uh, but I do need to change the uh, the color of the bulbs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the thing to look at when you're doing this too, it matters more, I want to say, for people that are shooting photos and doing videos in their shop. Yes. Is the yeah. color rendering index, the CRI. Yeah. It's very important for folks like that, but it's also very important for you and your shop, especially when you're dealing with you know the colors of the wood. And you're you're yeah. you're doing any type of finishing, which most people are. It really helps you see what the color is supposed to be. Yeah. A CRI, I think, of like ninety five or over is desirable. That's why you have LED lights that sell for one hundred and fifty dollars a fixture, and then you've got LED lights that sell for twenty bucks a fixture. It has to do with the mostly with the CRI. So keep that in mind. Well, Chris, and the lumens. Yes. Chris, I hope that helps you. Um, check those things out. And I think we're back to Guy. Okay. This question is from Tom. Is this the same Tom? I don't, I don't know. know. Anyways, enjoyed the podcast. And this is the second time I've submitted a question. You addressed my first question very well. So let's see if we can go two for two. Sounds like it's a different guy than the other guy. Yeah. I hear you guys, especially Guy, touting the benefits of Schlack. I'm not feeling the love personally. Now, I don't use flakes and mix my own, which may be the problem. I use the Zinzer product and brush it on. I have trouble with uneven coats. Some areas drying too fast, keeping me from working with a wet edge. Lots of runs and just generally uneven and ugly. I hear you talk about spraying, which I can do, but I haven't tried that yet. When spraying, what do you use to clean the sprayer? I'm using ammonia per instructions to clean my brushes, but not thrilled with using it on the sprayer. Do I just need to start mixing my own to get a decent finish? Also, the Zinsser leaves too much of a glossy finish. How do I get more satin? Thanks, Tom. Okay, 
I'm going to address a few of these things here. The first thing is that to clean the gun, you don't use ammonia. You use denatured alcohol. Alcohol is the solvent yep. for shellac. You use it to thin it and you use it to clean it. Does it really say use ammonia on the Zinser cans to clean? I've never used ammonia. I've never read the the instructions on the back of. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't have any here. I guess I could have looked it up beforehand. Anyways, you, you use denatured alcohol. Yeah. Um, he's saying he uses the Zinser product. Now that's like saying I use the General Finishes product. Okay. Which General Finish product? And it's the same thing here. Which Zinser product? If you're using, are you using the D-Wax shellac or like their regular shellac? What you really should be using in most cases is the Zinser seal coat, which is an unwaxed, I think it's a two pound cut shellac. Yep. If you use the, the stuff that says like amber shellac on it, that's got a, it's got wax in it and B it's like a four pound cut. Yeah. Mm. That stuff is like really hard to put on, especially with the brush. Yeah. I found anyways. So use the, as if you're going to use Zinser product, that's fine, but use the seal coat, which is unwaxed two pound cut. And even then I thin that. Mm-hmm. Shellac, out, yeah. shellac can turn into a big goopy mess very easily if you're not careful with it. That's why I, re- I, I did a video on this. And I recommend using something I called a rubber, which is just a, a piece of cheesecloth wrapped in a t-shirt material. And I squirt shellac on it and I, I rub it in with that. Mm-hmm. Very easy to do. It's very hard to get too much shellac on your your piece of wood yeah i know you use a lot of shellac sean what what do you think of this question i agree i I think that i know you brush a lot of shellac i should say yeah i I do i mean yeah i do and i'm a fan of brushing it depending on the size of the piece if it's a tabletop i love brushing it if it's smaller i'll just use a rubber and wipe it on um but to tom's question about it, about it drying too fast and lots of runs. So you can kind of get away with that depending on a thinner, on a thinner shellac of keeping a wet edge and sometimes rubbing over it. But when you start to build up four pound cuts or three pound cuts or whatever this stuff is, you don't realize how long you need to let that stuff set to harden. And then it just reactivates it. And it's just, ugh, it's just nasty it's because it, it it's dragging the material. Yep. Yep. Isn't it? Yep, and yeah, so that's, that's exactly it, Sean. You're right. It's 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 re um, activating. Yeah, the and, and you're smearing it. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that's I mean shellac. Yes, shellac does absorb into the layer beneath it to create a thicker layer and all that stuff. But it, it's hard to explain without demonstrating it. But when you're going with a really thick cut like this, and you're brushing it, you're smearing it, and then it's a wax shellac, and it's it just then you you get the streaks. It's best to start and apply shellac as thin as possible. Build your coats up slowly. Uh, they dry fast. You can apply it uh, multiple yep. coats in a day. You don't have to worry about it smearing four pound cuts of that stuff. And I mean, if you look at the flakes, I mean, you're essentially going to end up with something 
that's going to be similar in consistency. And if you can imagine a, a shellac flake getting partially dissolved, you're going to end up with a sticky, gooey mess. Yeah. And you want to build to that slowly with thinner coats. Uh, again, you can use a, a brush. I use an ox hair brush. It works great. And I use denatured alcohol to clean it. I have a, uh, a one of the a brush comb. And I also have the little the little thingy that you stick the brush in and put it in a trash can. And, and you, uh, it looks like a, a bicycle pump on the handle. It shakes it and cleans it out. If you take mm-hmm. care of the brush, you don't. You definitely don't need a need to use ammonia. Denatured alcohol works great, and the same thing in the sprayer. Yeah. But if you want to stick with the Zenzer products, like a uh, guy was saying, go with the seal coat. But if you like the what you have now, just thin it and yeah, take your time brushing it, let it dry but, but and go. Do you not generally? Uh, I thin the seal coat out of the can too because I think it's too thick. Yeah. I, yeah, I thin it with with denatured alcohol. Do do you do that, Sean? Uh, the seal coat, the first yeah. coat I don't, but subsequent okay. coats I do. I thin it. Okay. I thin it probably seventy five twenty five. I don't I don't go all the way down to one pound cut, mm-hmm. unless I'm doing some delicate work. But mm-hmm. typically, you know, I'll just do seventy five twenty five. Get it to a little bit less, a little bit thinner. First coat I don't, but then subsequent coats I do thin it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And I guess the first coat as the quote unquote seal coat, not, not the no pun intended. name, no pun intended, but the first coat, because it's, it's just absorbing. So, you know, it's raw wood. You're just absorbing so much. Yeah. So yeah, okay. you're not, you're not putting it on top of existing coats. So you're not have to worry about, you know, a gooey mess. You're trying mm-hmm. to seal the, the woods are going to soak it up. And if you got a one pound cut, I just find it takes more time. Again, it's just, just a, a preference of mine. Yeah. Gotcha. I've, I've gotten to the point where, I mean, as far as applying shellac, even on a small project, mm-hmm. I pull out my sprayer. Yeah. Because it takes all of 30 seconds to clean that gun up when I'm done. I just, you know, Throw empty, out, out empty out the, the shellac that's left in the cup. Mm-hmm. And then I put like, you know, maybe three or four ounces of denatured alcohol in it. And I just spray it out and then yeah. I just put it on the shelf and I'm done mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's it. Yeah. So uh, I don't even, you know, use a rubber hardly anymore, anymore. I just, I just use my hands. Yeah. I just, I just spray it because <laughs> it's so easy to clean in the gun and it, and I've got it down where I know exactly where to set my gun to at, just where it atomizes and I'm not, getting all kinds of um, orange peel, uh, orange peel and, and back spray and overspray and everything else. I just, I got really tuned in and I can just put it in there, do my settings and I'm done. Nice. Yeah, you can almost spray that stuff like water. It's so thin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You use the thinnest, the smallest nozzle setting. Is that right? Uh, I, th- I don't know what size my nozzle is. Yeah. It's the one that's on the, the gun that I use for the shellac. Yeah. So. Alrighty. I believe moving on, I've got the last question. This is from Michael. Recall an instance where you messed up at a critical step in a build. Then describe what you did to shake off the setback and what, if anything, you did to save the project. I have I have screwed up a lot in my journey thus far, and I'm, I will continue to screw up in the, again in the future. <laughs> Um, there are projects that I wish that I could get back and, 
and and fix the issues that I let pass. I'm not going to talk about those, um, but I will bring up one project that I made recently. Not I've not made anything recently. Uh, I guess a year or two ago, um, mm-hmm. the Babinga floor standing cabinet thingy that I made that uh, on the doors. I tried to, you know, just just being me, being dumb. I try to cut the doors to size and then go to fit them. And I'm like, well, crap. They, no matter how I move them in and out, because I had adjustable um, hinges, the uh, the uh, cabinet style hinges, the soft close, mm-hmm. you can move them in and out, up and down. You can move them a million different ways. So I thought, well, maybe I can adjust them to make the gap between the two doors and the center smaller. And it, it was just a, a screw up on my part. I, I made the doors essentially too small and as expensive as Bobinga lumber is, I didn't have very much on hand. It, it required me to go buy a 10 foot long, 12 inch wide board because that's all they had. So it was a very, very, very costly mistake. Um, but I, I just didn't want, I, I'd spent a lot of money and a lot of time and effort on the cabinet already. So I wasn't about to just leave doors with gaps you know, on the left side of them, on the right side of them and in the center because they were too small. I mean, it was too important of a project uh, for me and too expensive. So I had to go purchase probably a $250 board just to make, you know, two more frames because I went with glass for the panels. Um, so what did I do to shake it off and the, shake off the setback is just, uh, it's tough. I mean, all you can do besides throwing every tool in the shop that you can pick up is to, uh, you know, is to just take a break, realize what you have to do to fix it, and then just do it. Um, you know, I pretty much what did I do to save the project is I went and purchased a 10-foot-long, $250 Bobinga board <laughs> to make two small doors because oh. that's what you got to do. Just think of it. You've got all that Bobinga now that you can make something else with. You're right. I do. That is a positive. There's a positive with every, mm-hmm. every negative. And I also have the old doors that I can turn into picture frames that I still have out there. <laughs> there you <laughs> go. So, um, you know, you, you're, you're going to mess up and, and all, the advice that I give you is, uh, and the critical part of a project is to, to fully think it through. I'm not going to say the, you know, the cliche of measure twice, cut once. I mean, that, that would have worked in my case, but you know, it's just, Anytime that I deal with doors or hinges or drawers or anything like that, I just have to stop and fully think and analyze and picture it and measure and measure and measure and then cut. This time I, I just, I didn't do that. And I was like, oh, okay, let me, let me look at the opening, divide that by two, remove an eighth of an inch on each side for the hinges. And, and I removed too much and it made the doors too small. And so then I yeah. had to pay for the mistake. Um, but the good thing is it's fixed now. I, it doesn't bother me anymore. Um, but at the time I was, I was just disappointed in myself more than anything, but these are the, these are how you learn uh, because the next time that I made cabinet doors, I did it right because mm-hmm. of this experience. But, uh, we, what about you? Do you have any, uh, instances where you messed up at a critical step in a build? Yeah, I was cutting the curve on a stretcher to a trestle assembly. And as I was cutting, as I was template routing, I did not pay attention to where that tenon was on the end of the stretcher. Mm. And 
the tenon got knocked into the bit and and mucked up the the tenon, which is a through tenon. So oh. you're gonna see it. Um, and I was so upset with myself uh, because at that point all the joinery is done and and the stretcher is a big piece, right? It's like you know five foot long and I don't know eight inches wide. And I was like, I don't have another board. I just don't have another board. Um, and it would have been just so much to have to redo. So what I did was I cut out the part, um, square that I had mucked up and I found a scrap piece that matched the chair. In this case, I was using cherry matched the, uh, the look of the end of the tenon and I got the grain to go about the same direction and I cut it down, um, a strip of it down. I, glued it on and then I reshaped that tenon. Um, and when you, you know, when that through tenon goes through the mortise, I mean, you can't even tell, especially considering where I cut it, the line where I cut it was where I was going to wedge it. So, um, so I was going to make a, make a cut along that line anyway. And so you really can't tell that, um, that was a replaced piece, but yeah, when, when it happens, you kind of just, you get really nervous, your blood pressure goes up, you know, suddenly like you start sweating and everything. And then I just kind of took a, took a break, went back, um, inside. I think I uh, had a glass of water, came back outside and was like, all right, time to do a repair. And most things are repairable. Some, some things are not in this case it was. So guy, how about you? Something nope. that, uh, nope. He never mucks anything up. <laughs> Except this answer. Let's yep. move on. Yep. No, I, um, just on this last project I made, which is my desk, I, I screwed up the veneer on the top. I had bought some uh, quilted babenga, which is really expensive. Mm-hmm. It's the most expensive veneer I've ever purchased. And I proceeded to screw up the entire top. And there was no fixing. I had to redo it. And I ended up um, getting some cherry. And the thing is, I know exactly what I did wrong. I did it. The reason it happens because I was lazy. And of course, hubris also doesn't help. Uh, overconfidence mm-hmm. in myself because I know everything and I know how to do this. Well, mm-hmm. no, I don't. And I screwed it up. And it's one of those things where in, in the last job I had, I was a operations manager, director of operations for a construction company. And, you know, you got a bunch of different things going on and things would get screwed up all the time. And somebody would come running to my house. Oh my God, this happened. And oh my God, what are you going to do? And it was his fault. And I just look at it. I don't care. Don't care. Don't care. Here's where we are. What are we going to do to fix it? And it's the same thing with woodworking. It's important to know what mistakes you've made so you don't make them again. However, it's totally unnecessary to relive it in your mind for the next two days. Mm. It's like, okay, here's what I did. This is why, this is how I screwed this up. Okay. I don't want to do that again. Now, how do I fix this? Do I have to remake the part? Can I fix the part I screwed up? That's all that matters. Here's where, here's where I am. Here's where I need to be. And how do I need to get there? 
those are the only questions you should be asking yourself in that situation. And it's really hard to do because, you know, most of the projects that you, that, that we do, even the stuff I do, you know, at work where I'm pounding out stuff, there's still an extension of me. I Mm -hmm. still feel very tied to those pieces, even though I'm building them for unseen customers and I'll never see them again after they leave the shop. Doesn't matter. I still feel like I've given birth to everything. So I've, 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 I feel very uh, passionate about what I do and I'm very uh, conscientious of what I do and what goes out and, and what I put my name on. I'm not just putting my company's name on stuff, but I'm putting my name on stuff. And it's important that I'm going, I'm going into a, a rabbit hole here. Anyways, bottom line is just know what you did. Don't do it again, which is easy to say. But don't and, gloat about it. Yeah, but just find a way to, 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 to move on. Yeah. That's what's important. Yeah, and just to finish up on that, one time my dad was over and I had screwed something up and I was, I was upset and he just, he couldn't understand it. He was like, what? I said, I screwed something up. He goes, okay, what's the big deal? You're a woodworker. You're, you should know how to fix that. And I was like, that's not the point. I now I got to do it over again. You know, but you get like, mad at yourself. Yeah. yeah. But he's like, right. But you're a woodworker. Shouldn't you know how to f- fix it? I mean, yeah, I do, but I've got the, the biggest issue is you got to do it all over again. That's the biggest thing that mm-hmm. irritates me. It's not that I screwed up. I'm like, God, now I got to, now I got to mill up three quarter inch lumber. I got to cut it to size. I got to cut the joinery. I got to glue it together. I got to cut the rabbits. That's the part that, that, that gets yeah. me. It's, and sometimes you get into a project and it's like you've, you, you reach a certain point where you can't make mistakes anymore. Because yes. you've got you're you're a hundred hours into a project, man, and it's like one slip of the chisel, and you're back to square one. And you know what? I should have talked about. I'll 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 give you another example real quick. We got time. We know the owner of this podcast. We'll extend it. Um, <laughs> I was making the William and Mary Lowboy. I spent days turning the legs and turning the the feet. Days turning that stuff. I purchased a lathe for it, the extension for it. I purchased the the turning tools and spent days and days and days learning how to turn and then turning them. And then I started to cut the the lower case, uh, I you know which had all kinds of nice curves and stuff in it. And then I cut the dovetails and then I glued them up wrong in such a way <laughs> that I could not get the back panel on. <laughs> so I had to scrap. And I purchased, I had my sawmill um, kiln drive five quarter walnut for me, a couple hundred board feet just for this. And so I was done. I didn't have enough five quarter walnut now to finish the project. I had turned all these legs and feet that I could no longer use. Uh, And I had this big case that I glued up three sides, but could not put the other side on because I glued it up out of order. And that really really got to me and yeah. I had to cut it, cut it down with a handsaw because it was too big to use a tool on. And I put the legs and the feet away that I still have and through, you know, put the rest of the stuff up that I could reuse later through the rest away. And then all I could do was just move on because that was a massive, massive mistake. 
that ruined yeah. the entire project. It was rough. Yeah, that's a that's a that's, a, that's an awful story. <laughs> yeah, I'm just glad it happened to you and not to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like we can laugh about it now, but I've been there, man. And like I said, there comes you know, it's, and that's why I'm, I'm I'm doing training at work with some of these guys. It's like okay, we're at this point right now where you've got like a just about anything can be saved pre glue up. But once you start gluing up subassemblies and you've glued up, you know, three quarters of the project, it's hard to fix things. Yeah. And you just make one mistake, man. And it's just like, how do we fix it? You can't. Yep. And this was, yeah. And this was like my fourth or fifth project after learning the basics of woodworking. I mean, I was bold and Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I paid dearly for it. (laughs) That is a very, very bold yeah, it's a good story, though. For, it's a good story. Yeah. I, you know what? I had buried it so deep that I forgot all about it until <laughs> just now. And now I'm reliving well, it. Hopefully, well, we'll, hopefully, you won't give yourself nightmares. Yeah. Nah, not anymore. Yeah. Nah. All right, that's good. All right. So uh, I think that'll do it for this show. Please remember, this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community. So if you have questions that you would like answered, send them to us through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. We'd also like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on iTunes. And if you haven't, please do so. It really helps in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. You can reach me at simplecove.com and at simplecove on Instagram and YouTube. Hui, where can they find you? alabamawoodworker.com. All the links to my social media are on my website. And Guy, where can we find you? Online and social media, it's just everything is Guy's Woodshop. So, you know, whatever platform it is, just look for Guy's Woodshop and you'll find me. Awesome. Thanks for listening. See you in a couple of weeks. See you. See you in a couple. <laughs>